Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel's son. Ayo. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say a couple things, okay? If you want to support the show, there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only $0.16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. So if for some reason you have listened to all of our episodes and you want access to more episodes, well, you can go on Patreon and there we have over 100 exclusive Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. So to see this full list of Patreon episodes, Go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon Episodes tab. There, you will see the entire list of past Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is our new series that we're starting, Mysteries Part 1, in which we talk about different mysteries that listeners, yes, that's right, you, have suggested that aren't quite beefy enough for a full episode, so we decided to start a new series for it. So you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify. And that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Circleville Letters. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk a little bit about the town of Circleville, and then we'll go into the backstory of some individuals that lived there, the letters, and then we'll get into some strange facts and findings, and then theories, and then wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. Starting in the late 1970s, in a small town of Ohio, individuals open their mailboxes to find mysterious letters. These strange letters that were written anonymously threatened to expose the dark secrets of the individuals who received them. For over the next 20 years, these letters would continue, and this small town would turn into one of the strangest stories that we have ever come across. It contains a scandalous affair, a fatal car crash that was rumored to be a murder, and a deadly booby trap that was found by a school bus driver. All while these random letters were terrorizing the people who lived there in this small town. This is the Circleville Letters. All right, so before we dive into this episode, 
I just want to say something real quick. When we first started researching this, I thought it was going to be a pretty straightforward topic because every time when we start researching something, we tend to read every single article that we can come across, listen to every podcast, listen to every YouTube series, listen to anybody who has covered the topic. And usually when a topic is pretty well covered and by a lot of people and it's done in the same manner as in all of the people are saying the same story, that usually tells us that the story is pretty straightforward. However, after we pulled FBI documents, police reports, we ended up going over the entire trial that took place and read all the paperwork from that. Dates of certain things were not lining up. Certain claims about this story were completely fabricated by media sources. So it was at this point that it became our mission to pretty much be the only people who have ever told this story as accurately as it's ever been told before. Because there was no other source of news, video, or anything like that that was telling the story according to how all the evidence laid out. Needless to say, we dove super deep into this, so I hope you're prepared, all right? So let's get into the story. Dan, do you want to start it off for us? Of course. All right, so this entire story takes place in a small town that is located 30 minutes south of Columbus, Ohio, called Circleville. Now, this town of Circleville is pretty small. It is only seven square miles and has a total population of around 14,000 individuals. So needless to say, it has a pretty tight-knit community. All right, so now that you know about the location itself, let's jump back 45 years ago to the year 1977. So at this time, in the town of Circleville, there was a married couple named Ronald and Mary Gillespie. Now, Ronald and Mary, they were pretty young. Ron was 36 years old, and Mary was 34 years old. They had been married for the past 16 years to one another, and they had two children together, a boy named Eric and a girl named Tracy. Now, Ronald and Mary both had pretty good jobs. Ron worked at Pittsburgh Plate Glass there in Circleville, and Mary had been working as a school bus driver for the past few years at one of the local schools. Overall, everything was going pretty good for their family. They had some money in the bank, they had their own home, they had good jobs, they were healthy, and everything seemed to be going great. However, that was all going to quickly change. Now real quick, we're going to shift gears and talk about someone else. However, I want you to keep Ron and Mary in the back of your mind, because they play a vital role in this entire story. All right. So the next person that we're going to talk about real quick is an individual named Gordon Massey. So Gordon was also a resident of Circleville, and he was the superintendent of the transportation over the school district that Mary was working as a school bus driver at. So basically, Gordon was Mary's boss. Now, Gordon at this time was fairly young. He was only 40 years old when he initially accepted the position in 1972. And by the year 1977, he was 45 years old had been married for quite some time at that point, and he had a son who was in high school. And just a little side note here, if you want to put a face to these names, we do have a photograph from a newspaper article of Gordon accepting the position as the West Fall School Superintendent of Transportation back in 1972. So if you want to see his ugly mug, you can head over, <laughs> you can head over to our website, 
theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can click on the References tab. You can scroll all the way down to the bottom, and there you'll be able to see that photograph. All right, so now that we have an understanding of who Ronald, Mary, and Gordon were, let's get into the meat of the story. So, on Wednesday, March 2nd of 1977, Westfall High School, which was the school that Gordon was the superintendent of transportation of, well, they had received an odd envelope that was addressed to the superintendent of transportation, Gordon Massey. And just an FYI, this part of the story is where almost everybody messes up. Everyone states that Mary was the first one to receive a letter from this Circleville writer. However, that is not the case. Gordon was the first one who received the letter, and it was on March 2nd. And we have photographs and scans of all of the letters with the date uh, from the postal office that shows when they were accepted. All right. So Gordon ended up getting this envelope, and he was sort of confused. It was addressed to him, but it had no return address on it or any other type of marking to state where it had came from. However, Gordon said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to open the envelope to see what it contains. Inside the envelope was a handwritten letter. Gordon immediately noticed that the handwriting on the letter was odd, though. All of the letters were capitalized and written as if someone was trying to deliberately cover up their handwriting and make it look generic, which was weird. However, he went ahead and decided to read the letter, which said the following. Dear Sir, according to my girlfriend, you have asked her to go out many times and have asked the other female bus drivers too. Due to your position and their jobs with you, you should not do this. This must stop at once for the good of the school and families. If they are not stopped, I will be forced to write to the school board, and I would hate to do that. To prey on another man's girl is untouchable, especially when they are out trying to make a living. There is also talk of you dating a married woman and taking advantage of them. Do you need time and names? Please think. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. So that's what the letter said. Now, initially, Gordon didn't really mention this letter to anyone and just kind of thought of it as being weird and thought it would just go away. However, it did not go away. Because two days later, on Friday, March 4th, 1977, the Westfall High School Board of Education received an envelope in the mail. And just a quick FYI, the Board of Education at the school, they were pretty much the boss of Gordon. So they could fire him or place him on leave. Just a little knowledge nugget. All right, back to the story. So the Board of Education received the envelope in the mail. Now this envelope looked exactly the same as the one that Gordon had received the previous day. It had no return address on it or any other markings to state where it had came from. Of course, the school board was like, screw it. Let's open the envelope and read the letter that's on the inside, which it said the following. Dear school board, this is to inform you that you have several dissatisfied female drivers due to their working relations with their boss. He dates a lot of the drivers. One, because she's afraid to not say no because of her job and because of his position. He constantly asks several of them over and over. No one ever stops him. He will not take no for an answer from a couple of them. 
It even bothers some that he has not asked. They would like the chance to tell him where to go. Under these circumstances, they cannot be treated equally. He picks on the weaker ones constantly. This is a terrible working condition and must be stopped for the sake of the schools and the families involved. Again, you should investigate. He has dated several of them. Before long, we'll start repeating the rounds all over again, causing some more hardships and others a low morale problem. Some have even considered a bargaining unit for job protection. He's a nice guy on the outside, but please talk to your drivers independently for the full facts of how he is to work with. Please talk to them and treat the problem. Some are nervous and shouldn't be driving under additional pressure like this. After me writing this letter, I sure hope he does not upset my girl for his sake. So that is what the letter said to the Board of Education. And just a little FYI, in that letter at the end of it, he says, do not upset my girl, singular. In the previous letter, he said girls, plural. I saw that. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So what happened after that? Now, that same exact day, another envelope was sent to the superintendent of schools, which was the big dog over the entire school district. So this letter looked exactly the same as the one that Gordon and the Board of Education had received. It had no return address on it or any other type of markings to state where it came from. So, of course, the superintendent opened the envelope and read the letter, which said the following. Dear Superintendent, this is to inform you. Several of your bus drivers are working under pressure due to their boss constantly putting the moves on them. Some like it. The decent ones don't. Is he getting paid to run the women or run the bus lines? Again, some move behind him because they need the attention. Should this position be filled by someone capable of taking advantage of his job, school, and people that work for him? Is this the type of family man that we need in a position such as this? Capable of using working women because of his advantages. One woman dates him because of her job. This is terrible working relations, and something must be done about it. Most of the drivers know what is going on constantly. You should talk to them and also him before something drastic happens. For he cares not if they are married or single. Could he be allowed to hound them constantly? I was informed at first by a close friend and refused to believe it. But she proved it through several other friends. I told them to take this matter to someone, but so far they have not. It's only a few, but they still should count to. I can prove this and will if her school insists on it. I feel that at first he should be talked to and the drivers also. I will find out through the grapevine if he has been put in line. I know of his affairs now and can prove it and will do so if he continues harassing drivers for dates. Especially when they keep saying no and he constantly hounds them. I have met him and he seems like a sincere man. So I would like to see this matter made right and forgotten. I can't stand the thought of him thinking about this. One of these drivers, or especially my girl, which I am sure makes no difference to him. I am being informed of him daily and can point out the last drivers he has been with. I shall prove it to you. Again, he needs talking to so this matter can be forgotten. Give the drivers a break. Help them. Find out for yourself.
treat all equal. Friends of concerned drivers that are in fear. I have always been against school tax dollars bonuses because of their purpose and won't pay it unless correction and action has been taken. So that right there was the third letter. What a way to end it on. He signs it as friends of concerned drivers that are in fear. And then at the very bottom of it, he said, I have been against school tax dollars bonuses because of their purpose. He's like, I'm not going to pay it. Oh, man. So at this point, word of these letters, they started to spread. You know, people started talking about them. But a lot of people just kind of like blew it off as maybe like a crazy person, you know. Even the Board of Education and the superintendent thought that, hey, maybe it was a crazy person just making these ridiculous claims. So nothing was ever done about it. The Board of Education and the superintendent never investigated the superintendent of transportation, Gordon Massey, or anything like that. It was all sort of pushed aside. However, that didn't stop the letters from coming in. So only 12 days later, on Wednesday, March 16, 1977, the Westfall High School received another envelope in the mail addressed to Gordon Massey. This envelope was just like the past three. It had no return address and was written very weirdly. Inside of the envelope was a handwritten letter that said the following. Note, I am no fool or quack. You are. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> literally what he, that's you, what he says. You, you are. You got to keep it like that. All right. I know of your talk to some of the drivers. Don't turn them from me. I know who hangs in the office for you to flirt with. Don't say it's not your fault. What about all those Thursdays and Fridays with different girls? Stick with your pimple-faced ones. That's all you can get. I know the true you, and you know it. I can prove everything. You're pushing your luck. I know everything. I can find out everything. Don't flirt with my girl. I will call you at home. No. I don't work there as you think. Now, at this point in the letter, the handwriting is extremely hard to read. The letters that we're going off of at this point were all pulled from the court systems, okay? Because eventually uh, courts get involved, and I won't spoil the story, but a lot of these letters were brought into court as evidence. They were scanned. And the ink didn't go all the way through onto the document itself. And those documents were used in court. So, like I said, the rest of the letter, you, you can't really read what it says. But it looks like the letter says, don't blame what it looks like is S-O-R-R-S. And then you can clearly see that it says, they are innocent. Show this to all. Good luck with your tires and gas tanks if you flirt with my girls. So again, he ended up going back to plural, girls, more than one. However, we can't tell what the middle of that letter says. Don't blame S-O-R-R-S. Behind the first S, there is a period. So I guess those are the initials of someone's name. Yeah, don't blame S or R-S. Yeah, so... After the they are innocent, it has a colon. Pretty much he like made a statement like S or RS, they are innocent. And then he's like, show this to all. Yeah, you're right. So what happens after that, Dan? Well, two days later, on Friday, March 18th, 1977, two envelopes arrived at Westfall High School. 
Both of them looked exactly like the past four envelopes, except they were both directed to be given to the vice principal at the school. Now, inside both of the envelopes, it had a letter that had the same weird handwriting. The first letter said the following. Dear school, talk to Gordon Massey about his affairs. I shall warn you, I know the truth. I want to protect your school. It has a good reputation. You should keep it like that. Don't hold sex scandals. I shall send you proof about driver number 62917. She has a child in school there now. I shall prove this shortly. I expect him to be discharged. You'll see that I am telling the truth. So that is what the first letter to the vice principal said. And it is worth mentioning that in this first letter, the anonymous writer, he mentions driver number 62917. So after looking into that, that driver number is the same exact driver number that was given to the school bus driver, Mary Gillespie. You know, the woman that we talked about earlier who was married? Oh, yeah. Ron. Mm-hmm. So after reading that first letter, the vice principal opened up the second one and decided to read it as well. And it said the following. Dear school, Gordon Massey has been dating Mary Gillespie, bus number 62917. Please discuss this with them. What do I have to do for proof? Bringing their bodies together? I will if I have to. Contact them. There is also another. I will send you proof soon. You will see that I am right. So that is what the second letter said to the vice principal. I mean, it's kind of weird because it's claiming that, hey, this superintendent is having inappropriate relations with this married woman. And you know what? It doesn't stop there. Because later that day, on March 18th, the same day that the vice principal received those two letters, Ron Gillespie, you know, the husband of the bus driver, Mary, well, he was just sitting at work, waiting to get off, you know, just minding his own damn business. All of a sudden, his boss walks up to him and says, hey, Ron, you got some mail delivered here. It's an envelope that is addressed to you, however they used our work address. Kind of weird, man. Here you go. And handed him the envelope. Now, Ronald was sort of confused because he never received his mail at his job. So he looked over the envelope and became even more confused. The envelope was addressed to him. However, it had no return address on it. Ronald decided to open the envelope and inside was a handwritten letter. And the letter said the following. Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. I have been following them. If her bus number is 62917, it is her. She's being used. He will never leave his wife for her. You'll see. You should catch them together and kill them both. Just follow her, and she will lead you right to him. So that is what the letter said. And of course, after Ron read it, he was a bit confused, but also a bit curious as if this was truly going on. So he went home that night after work and showed the letter to his wife, who assures Ron that she is not cheating on him and that she has no idea why some crazy person would write him a letter and say those ridiculous things. Of course, Ron believes her, and they both agree to contact the police and notify them of the letter, and sort of keep it hush-hush for the most part. And what a lot of people don't talk about is at this point, right after they contacted the police, the police started an investigation into this, and they ended up bugging the phones of Ron and Mary the entire time while this was going on. So, just a little FYI. All right. So a few days later, on Monday, March 21st, 1977, Mary got home from work 
and decided, hey, I'm going to go check the mail before I walk into my house, just like every other person does, right? So she pulls out the stack of mail that she has. She starts walking into the house, and she notices something odd. There was an envelope that was addressed to her. However, just like her husband's letter that he had received a few days ago, it had no return address on it either. Mary decided to open the envelope, and inside it contained a letter. Mary proceeded to read the letter, which said the following. Miss Gillespie, stay away from Gordon Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. I imagine that's exactly how he was talking whenever he wrote that letter. He was probably like sitting up perfectly straight with a smug look on his face like, I'm in the right. Yeah. And this whole thing, it seems like just some crazy person writing a letter. But that is just the tip of this story. Because as time progresses, this entire story becomes super insane. Almost unbelievable at points. Also, by the way, we do actually have a photograph of that original letter itself. We don't have some crappy scanned black and white document of the letter from the court case. We actually have a photograph of the original letter. So, of course, if you want to look at that uh, photograph of the letter, you can just head to our website, Theories of the Third Kind, click on References, scroll all the way down at the bottom, and there you can see it. That's the original one. All right, so that's the letter right there. Now, before we go into what happens next, after Mary receives a letter, let's take a quick break. It'll be really fast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. So, Dan, tell us what happens to Mary after she receives this letter that pretty much threatens her and her children and states that, hey, I'm watching your house. I know you're seeing Gordon. This isn't a joke. Take it serious. What does Mary do? So, of course, after receiving this letter, Mary was terrified. She showed it to her husband, Ron, and again, just like with the letter that Ron had received that previous Friday, they called the police, spoke with the sheriff, and reported that letter. And that was really the only person that they mentioned this letter to. They went on with their life, acting as if nothing had happened, just sort of hoping it would all go away. So fast forward eight days later, on March 29, 1977. On this day, Mary received another letter in the mail. This letter said, and we quote, I know everything. Call the sheriff. He can't watch you forever. Route 3, Circleville, Ohio. Bus number 62917. Phone number 474-7301. I shall keep ringing. Again, this is no joke either. Meet him and ride in his car so I can make headlines and get this over with. So that is what the letter said. And again, Ron and Mary reported it to the sheriff, and they just tried to ignore it and go on with their life. I mean, at that point, it was sort of like taking a toll on them. Apparently, both of them were having trouble sleeping. They voiced to one another that they were scared of something happening to their children, and they were just pretty much on edge all of the time having to sort of like keep an eye on like everything that was going on around them to make sure like, hey, we hope this crazy person just doesn't run up to us and like attack us. So yeah, they were always on edge. 
So again, just like the last letter, eight days later on April 6, 1977, Mary received another anonymous letter in the mail that had the same weird handwriting. This letter said the following. Lady, this is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, only causing families, homes, and marriages to suffer. You are such a pig, and I will prove it. Why doesn't he come to your rescue, or has he too much to lose? His wife, in which pigs like you take advantage of? His $28,500 a year job, or his kickbacks? How's your little girl? Will she grow up to be just like you? So that is what the letter said. And, by the way, just like the other one, we do actually have a photograph of the original letter itself, not some crappy black and white scanned document of the letter. And you can go to our website and take a look at it. And this one is actually written in pen, and it has certain things uh, circled, such as uh, behind their backs only, at the top of it, the uh, line that says, this is your last chance to report him, that's underlined. You are a pig is underlined. A little girl is circled at the bottom. So he pretty much put a lot of emphasis on those sections of the letter. Very interesting. Yep. So tell us about what happens next, Dan. So after Mary got that letter, guess what happened six days later? She gets another one. (laughs) No, Ron got another letter in the mail. Ooh. This letter was just like all of the other ones and said the following. Gillespie. You have had two weeks and done nothing. You are a pig defender. You are also a pig. Make her admit and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. Only pigs ride motorcycles. Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. Remember. She hung in his office constantly until she broke up his marriage and home. Contact people at school. They're aware. They are starting to laugh, and not only at her. Let her read this. It is no lie. She knows I'm telling no lie. I followed him for weeks since last summer, and have seen her meet him several times. He knew if caught, there would be trouble. He can't have affairs with school employees and keep his job. He knows what I want. When he quits, I'll go away. So that is what the letter said, and at this point, it just amplified the worries and stress of Ron. He started driving around town at random times, looking for any signs or billboards that the anonymous person had promised to post, so that he could tear them down before anyone else would see them. And just a little FYI, in that last letter that was written to Ron, in the middle of it, it says, Good hunting in your red and white truck on your way to work. And Ron did have a red and white truck. So the guy obviously was casing out the place. He knew Ron. He knew Mary. He knew stuff about their lives. So it's not like this was just some random crazy person. This person knew a lot of stuff about them. And Ron and Mary had no idea who this person was. So a few days passed after Ron ended up receiving this letter. And I bet you can guess what happened next. That's right. Mary received her weekly letter. It was almost like every single six to eight days, one of them would receive a letter. And this time it was Mary. So this letter was, of course, from that same anonymous person. And it was a pretty long one. 
However, to sum this letter up, this anonymous person tells Mary that he knows that she's been having an affair with her boss, Gordon Massey, and tells Mary, hey, you need to tell on Gordon so that you can get him fired. So that's what pretty much it says. Yeah, and just like the other letters, Ron and Mary reported it to the police. However, something strange happens. A few weeks pass, and they don't receive any letters. Then finally, on April 26th, Mary, of course, receives another anonymous letter. Except this one is pretty short and to the point, which this letter says the following. Lady, thanks to you, she's leaving him. It won't be long. Now who will wash the poop stain from his shorts? Thanks again for the affair. The truth will be out soon. It's really, it's really what the letter said. <laughs> Wash his poop stains from his shorts. You must be really watching them there, huh? <laughs> Breaks in, he's like, what can I see? Oh, oh. Following that letter, this anonymous person quit writing to Mary and Ron. However, Ron was still sort of stressed out about the entire situation and trying to find out who this person was behind all of this, which things wouldn't turn out good for him in his journey. No, they would not, and this is where something very strange and odd happens. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. So now we're going to fast forward to August 19th, 1977. It had been a couple months since they had actually received the last letter. However, Ron was still trying to figure out who was behind it. And he kind of suspected that, hey, maybe my wife was cheating on me. Mary, on the other hand, was kind of like, you know, I just want to leave it all alone and I just want to move on with my life. So on that day of August 19th, 1977, Mary left to go to Florida for sort of a mini vacation with her friends. So later that evening of the 19th, Ron got off work and headed home to make dinner for his kiddos. A little before 10 p.m., the house phone rings and Ron picks it up. Ron has a short, heated conversation with the person on the phone. He then hangs it up, walks to his room, he grabs his 22 caliber revolver, he walks to his daughter Tracy's room, he tells her, hey, I'm going to go confront the letter writer. Tracy, his daughter, was like, uh, okay. Ron gives his daughter a kiss on the forehead, tells her, hey, I'll be right back. He walks out of the house, gets in his red and white 1971 Ford pickup, and drives away. 30 minutes later at 10.30 p.m., the local emergency dispatch receives a call reporting an accident involving a red and white 1971 Ford pickup on Five Points Pike Road. So five minutes after that call to 911, Officer Lee Gray, Unit 19 of the Pickaway County Sheriff's Office, arrives on the scene. Immediately following that, the ambulance arrives. Now, what they see at the scene is Ron's 1971 pickup off the road, smashed up, wrecked, and it has pretty much been ran into a tree. Now, Ron, at the time of the accident, wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And when the wreck happened, he was partially ejected through the windshield. So the police officer and the EMTs, when they showed up, they were like, oh, shit. You know, Ron was like, help, help. Actually, he wasn't even alive. Spoiler alert. The EMTs removed Ron from the windshield, placed him into their ambulance, and rushed him to Burger Hospital in Circleville, which was 18 miles away. 
When they arrived at the hospital, Ron was pronounced dead. The stated cause of his death was massive trauma to the head and internal injuries due to the accident. So we do have the photographs of the accident. And no, they don't contain Ronald's body. So you don't have to worry about blood and guts. And yes, it was back in the 70s, so it's all in black and white, all right? So if you want to see those photos of the accident, all you got to do is just go to our website and take a look at them. We'll also have a little news clipping where Ronald uh, was mentioned in the obituary. And uh, we, we got four photographs that pretty much shows Ron's truck wrecked pretty badly. You can see where he ran into the uh, tree and just kind of bounced off of it. Now, there are a few things that we need to mention real quick. We ended up pulling the official police report of Ron's accident, and there's a very weird thing that we noticed. On the police report, it stated that Ron's 22 gun was found underneath him, which, I mean, on the surface, that's not too weird. However, the super strange thing is that there was one spent round that had been removed from the chamber. So yeah, that was initially like the very first weird thing we saw on the official police report. And as we started going through it, which I think it was like 17 or 18 pages, it wasn't that long. Of course, there was like a form 5293 inside of it, which was like an investigation form that submitted from the coroner. And it stated the following. On August 19th, 1977, I was informed that the body of Ronald Gillespie of 7100 Brooks Miller Road, Pickaway County, whose death occurred in a suspicious or an unusual manner, had been found within this county. Whereupon, I went to the emergency room at Berger Hospital in Circleville, Ohio, the place where the body was, and proceeded to inquire how the deceased came to his death. After personal observation of the corpse and considering the surrounding circumstances, together with statements of persons having adequate knowledge of the facts, I have received the conclusion that no autopsy was necessary. I find that the cause of death was massive head and torso trauma. His pickup truck went out of control, ran into a tree on Five Points Pike Road. So that's what the Form 5293 said in the police report. And of course, the coroner dated it at the bottom and signed it. Now, something else on this report of investigation from the coroner is that in the bottom left, it says, Investigated at the scene by the Sheriff's Department. Blood alcohol of 0.16%. Then on the next page of the police report, it shows a blood chemistry report of Ronald Gillespie that shows a blood alcohol level of 0.16% that was performed by Dr. Ray Carroll. So I know what you're asking. Aaron, what does 0.16 blood alcohol level mean? He was having a hell of a time. (laughs) Yeah, so if you look that up, the search results will state that, hey, a 0.16% of blood alcohol level means that the drinker has an appearance of a quote-unquote sloppy drunk and that they have gross motor impairment and lack of physical control, blurred vision, and major loss of balance. And of course, Dan, he had to go all mathematical on it, right? And he had to say, hey, I'm going to break it down to see how many beers he actually had. Tell us about that, Dan. Oh, yeah. How many drinks did he have that night to get that alcohol blood level? Well, on the police report, it stated that Ron was 5'7 and 155 pounds. So that would mean that he would have to have drunk 6 to 7 12-ounce cans of beer. That would have put him at the 0.16% blood alcohol limit for his stature. Yeah, so he wasn't a real big fella. 5'7, 155 pounds. 
what is it, six, seven beers? Yeah. Could you drink that amount, Dan? You used to. Mm. I cannot confirm nor deny that one time when I was 16 or 17 years old, I went to a party and I had a 12-pack of Budweiser cans. I proceeded to drink that entire 12-pack of Budweiser cans by myself, which I, I didn't really drink that much back then to begin with. Needless to say, I was pretty much non-functional the rest of the night. I ended up throwing up everywhere in the front yard. Yeah, it wasn't a good time. There you go. A little story time with Aaron. Story time with Aaron. Yeah. All right, so let's continue on with the story. So you see the police reports. You see the blood alcohol content. And on the surface, this entire thing of Ron's truck crashing the corner saying, hey, there's no need for an autopsy because, you know, you know, maybe Ron had been drinking to kind of cope with the thoughts of his wife maybe cheating on him. And they were just kind of like tormenting him on the inside. And then all of a sudden, that combined with all the weird ass letters he was getting and the people around the town talking about him and his wife running around on him, all that kind of took his toll on him. So he just kept hitting the bottle. Then at the perfect time, he gets a weird phone call, friggin' starts driving drunk, misses a turn, hits a tree and dies. So like I said, I mean, on the surface, it seems like an open and shut case. Yeah, on the surface. However, though, a lot of people in the town knew what was going on with the anonymous letter writer, as well as Ron trying to figure out who he was. The people in the town also knew that Ron wasn't the type of person to get drunk and start driving around and doing something reckless like this. So this is when the people in the town started suspecting that maybe Ron was murdered by the anonymous writer and that the sheriff's office was covering it up. However, we will dive more into that during our theory section. But let's continue on with the story first. So, of course, Ron's wife and his kids found out about his death, and they were pretty devastated. However, they continued on with their life the best that they could. Mary kept going to work as a bus driver, and the kids continued to go to school. Now, only a short time after Ron's death, the anonymous letter writer would start sending out letters again. Except this time it wasn't to Mary. They were being sent to various businesses around Circleville, Ohio such as the shopping marts, barber shops, and other principals at neighboring schools. Now, the first letter that was sent to the shopping marts said the following. Please know, the West Fall School superintendent caused a fatal accident so he could have the victim's wife. The public school board and sheriff are waiting. He must quit his job now. Not wait for a lengthy investigation. Take action now. So, of course, when the random business owners over the shopping market got this letter, they were like, uh, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> they were like, what the hell is this? If I got that letter, I'd be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <Get out of here." laughs> that's exactly what I'd be like, too. Well, the business owners started talking about it to their employees, who then started talking to their parents and friends about it, and it essentially did what the anonymous writer wanted it to do. It made individuals in the city talk about it. So shortly after that first letter was sent to the shopping marts, this is when the other businesses, like we stated, the barber shops and other principals at neighboring schools, they started to receive letters. And all the letters that they received said the exact same thing, which was the following. Dear public, the superintendent of Westfall High School has been reported for having affairs with school employees. He was greatly involved with a bus driver when her husband found out he was involved in a freakish fatal accident. 
The superintendent should take a lie detector test, but refuses. Why, if he's got nothing to hide? He's pleading and begging to keep his job and his wife. The people he destroyed mean nothing to him. He knows it's just a matter of time until he's run out of Westfall schools. He may try to come to your school district. Please investigate for the school's sake. When you see him or his latest affairs, they will probably be perched in a bar trying to destroy another marriage. Investigate. So that was a letter that a lot of the businesses and schools were getting from this anonymous writer. And of course, people started to talk and gossip about this. So these letters continued for the next couple years. Isn't that crazy? For, for years, for not just like a week or two, years, these letters continued. Could you imagine the frustration over the business owners? God damn it, I want these letters. I'm so tired of this. This anonymous person was heavily involved in this. Absolutely. As weird as this is, it gets even weirder, okay? It, tr it does. So listen to what happens next. Mary would still receive the occasional letter from the anonymous writer, telling her to fess up about her infidelity with Gordon. However, Mary would eventually ignore the letters. Of course, the police were still investigating the case, trying to figure out who was the writer, but they had no luck. Then, on December 17th, 1982, Mary received an odd Christmas card in the mail. Now, on the back of this Christmas card, it had that same weird block handwriting that said the following. Just tell your daughter we are going to post some signs about her next year at the bus stops. Since you've caused this by what you've done to Miss Massey, and all know it, how will you face her? But your type have no conscience, or you wouldn't have hurt Miss Massey behind her back. So that is what was written on the back of that Christmas card. And we do have a photograph of that original Christmas card. And just like the rest of them, you know, you can just go to our website and take a look at it. So what happens next, Dan? So following that Christmas card, Mary became more concerned about the anonymous writer. Her family had been through enough, and she didn't want her daughter to be the talk of the town and school based on some lies that were posted about her. Yeah, she was pretty scared that this writer was going to post signs around the town, basically making shit up about her daughter because Mary wouldn't, you know, read his letters or fess up to having the inappropriate relationship. So, like we said, Mary was kind of like emotional about it. She was kind of concerned. She kept her eye out for these signs. A few months passed, nothing happened. And then finally, on February 7th, 1983, at around 3.30 p.m., Mary was driving her normal bus route, dropping kids off, when she came to a stop at the Five Points Pike Road intersection where her husband had wrecked and died a few years earlier. Now, this road, it was part of her normal bus route. And at that time, I mean, she really didn't think too much of it. However, on this day, she noticed something different. While Mary was at the stop sign, she looked over to the side of the road and noticed that there was a small post that contained a sign on it. The sign was a personal attack against Mary's 12-year-old daughter. It stated that Gordon Massey and Mary Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter were having sexual relations. So, upon seeing that sign, Mary pretty much lost it. She put the bus in park, went outside, tore the sign down, and noticed that when she was tearing it down, the sign had like this weird box attached to the back of it. 
So she threw the sign with the box still attached to it inside her bus and just continued on with her bus route. Upon finishing her bus route, Mary took the sign with the box attached to it with her home. When she arrived home, she tried to pry the box open to see what was inside of it. Finally, she was able to get it open. She was shocked at what she saw. Inside the box was a handgun that was rigged to fire with a wire around the trigger and held upright between the styrofoam. This was a booby trap that had failed to go off. So originally, what was supposed to happen is that Mary was supposed to get angry at seeing the sign, get out of her bus, tear the sign down, which in the process of her tearing the sign down, it was supposed to trigger the wire which was attached to the box, which was attached to the sign, that wire triggering would fire the gun that was inside the box and it would shoot Mary and kill her. However, this booby trap ended up failing and after realizing, hey, someone just tried to kill me, you know, or attempted to kill me, Mary got freaked out. She immediately called the police and had them come to her house so that she could report what had happened and what she had found. Now, we do have the original police report of this incident, as well as multiple photographs of the booby trap itself. So if you want to take a look at those, then you can just head to our website, go to the references tab, scroll all the way down to this episode. Yep. So the police report is just a one page report, but the text on it is pretty small. But if you scroll in, you can clearly see what's written. Um, there's another picture that shows the actual location where the booby trap was found. It's like a snow bank on the side of a road near a fence. And the next picture is that of like a diagram that was pretty much drawn up and given out during court as evidence. And uh, it shows how this booby trap worked and how the gun was sitting there. Yeah, when someone opens that, I don't think the gun would be pointing at them. <laughs> no, no. Then the next two images are images from the trial and uh, pretty much shows the booby trap itself. And the box is a lot smaller than uh, how it is in the photograph, the diagram. That box is very small. And the gun itself is tiny as well. So if you want to take a look at those, just head to our website, click on references, scroll all the way down. There you go. So what happens after the police write up the report, Dan? All right. So after the police finished their report, they took the trap and the gun as evidence to see if they could get any fingerprints on it. Once they started processing the evidence, they noticed that someone tried to file off the gun's serial number. However, that person didn't do a good job because the police were able to figure it out. So the police ran that serial number, and it showed up that the gun belonged to an individual named Wesley Wells. So the police went and questioned this individual. And Wesley stated that, hey, I sold that gun a while back to a co-worker named Paul Fresher. Now, the police looked up who this Paul guy was. And guess what they found out? He was Mary Gillespie's brother-in-law. Now, it was at this point that the police assumed that Paul was indeed the person who set up the sign, set up the booby trap, and they assumed that, hey, we got the person who's the mysterious Circleville letter writer. We got him. So the police went and questioned Paul, who claimed that he did indeed buy the gun from a co-worker. However, he said that the gun had gone missing a long time ago and that he didn't know what happened to it. 
He also didn't have any idea or any involvement with anything to do with the booby trap or writing any of those weird-ass letters. The police did not believe him, especially the sheriff. Yeah, the sheriff ended up telling Paul, hey, if you want to clear your name, you should submit a handwriting test. That will prove that you're not the one writing these mysterious letters. Even though the whole entire thing was he set up a booby trap, which is attempted murder. The sheriff was just fixated on figuring out who this mysterious letter writer was. So Paul was like, okay, and he submitted a handwriting test. Now, this test was then forwarded to an expert who reviewed Paul's handwriting and stated that he could not determine if Paul was actually the writer or not. Didn't they give, like, show him the letter and he pretty much wrote the same thing that was on the letter? Yeah, so they showed him the letter and they told the sheriff told him, hey, write the letter as the same way as it looks. <laughs> Paul was like, uh, why don't I just write it how I do my normal handwriting? And the sheriff was like, no, 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 no. Because the, the person who writes this, it isn't their normal handwriting. You have to write it like this person. And that's what he did. And even then, when it was submitted to the expert, the expert was like, I can't tell if this is Paul's or not. No, goodness. It's like that sheriff was just trying to set him up. Oh, exactly, and it gets worse. The sheriff, however, was convinced that Paul was the writer and stated that there was a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to him being the writer and the person who created the booby trap. So the police arrested 40-year-old Paul L. Fresher for attempted aggravated murder and stated that he was the one who made the sign that was intended to kill Mary, as well as him being the anonymous letter writer. So after being arrested, the judge posted his bail at $150,000. Paul's attorneys that he hired requested for the bail to be lowered. However, the judge denied the request. Following that, on August 8, 1983, Paul was sent to the Southwest Mental Health Center for an evaluation, which he was found to be healthy mentally. After that, he posted bond and was released until his trial date. Finally, on October 24, 1983, Paul's case went to trial. At the start of it, Mary testified that on February 7th, she saw the sign on that fence post that referenced her daughter, that she tore it down, saw it contained a box, and then took it home, found the gun, and reported it to the police. Mary went on to say that she had received concerning letters over a period of time from March 21st, 1977 until December of 1982. She also testified that none of the letters threatened to kill her. And real quick, we ended up going over this entire court case documents. It was like 160-something pages or whatever. I think 167. And I just want to mention something. The charges that were brought up on Paul weren't for the letters. That attempted murder was for the booby-trapped sign, not for the letters. Even though they were only for the booby trap, the prosecutors kept bringing up the fact that, hey, Paul's this letter writer and kept bringing up the letters. So the jury at that point was told to consider the letters only as a state of mind that Mary was in. Like, hey, ignore them for the entire trial and anything that they have to do with Paul. Just concentrate on the fact that these letters affected Mary mentally, which makes no sense. These should have been thrown out as evidence. But hey, I wasn't a lawyer back then, okay? Anyways, let's continue on with the story. After Mary's testimony, a lot of the others came up to the stand. 
such as the police that were involved, Wesley Wells, the person who sold the gun to Paul, and many others. Eventually, a friend of Paul, Charles S. Spencer, went up on the stand and testified that prior to February 7, 1983, that he had been over Paul's house helping him try to locate the gun that had been stolen and that they were unable to find out who had it. Another individual named Michael Faulkner, he went up on the stand and testified. He said, hey, I was at the home of Paul between February 6, 1983 and February 7, 1983. And I did not see Paul leave the house between the hours of 12.30 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. on February 7th. Following that, David Wilson, who was the public relations manager for the job of where Paul worked at. Well, David went on stand and testified that from the records that he pulled, Paul was not at work on February 7th, 1983. He also stated that Paul had received a floating holiday in advance and took that day off. Now, even though there was no solid evidence of Paul building or planting that sign, that one single statement right there from David Wilson, where he said that Paul was not at work on that day, that statement right there is what convinced the jury that Paul was guilty. So Paul was eventually convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to seven to 25 years in prison. By the end of this super controversial trial, almost everyone in the town of Circleville was convinced that Paul had been the person behind the mysterious letters, that he had attempted to kill Mary, and that he very well might have had a hand in the death of Ron. At this point, the people of the town and even the sheriff started to say that the mysterious letter terrorist was behind bars and that no one had to worry anymore. However, he was wrong. <laughs> yeah, so the sheriff was like, hey, you, you citizens of the town of Circleville, you guys don't have to worry anymore. We got this mysterious letter terrorist, what they call him, mysterious letter terrorist. We got him behind bars. Even though he wasn't convicted of that, he was just convicted of building this bomb, okay? <laughs> Shortly after he said that, uh, the mysterious anonymous letters started being written and sent <laughs> not only to businesses, but to hundreds of people everywhere in that city. And when this started happening, the police were convinced that it was still Paul doing it, even though he was locked up in prison. So what did they do? They ended up going to Paul's cell and they said, hey, how are you able to send all of these letters out of prison? We've been watching you and you haven't written any letters, but they're still being sent out. How are you doing it? in which Paul was just sitting there, and he was like, uh, what the hell are you guys talking about? Because he had no clue what was going on. Oh, yeah. He didn't know that the letters were being sent out. At this point, the authorities placed Paul in solitary confinement as a way to make him stop writing letters. Even though he, yeah. was, <laughs> oh, even though he wasn't writing them. You figure the police would know the steps necessary for a letter to go out of prison. Yeah. Oh, well. Well... The letters continue to be sent to more people, taunting and terrorizing random people all over the city, and they were all exactly how they had always been. Anonymous, oddly written, and no return address. And uh, you would think that would be it. But no. The anonymous writer started to send letters to Paul in prison. And the letters weren't like, hey, I'm sorry this happened to you. They were pretty much taunting him. They were like, hey, 
good job getting arrested for something you didn't do. And it was at this point that the authorities came to the conclusion that, hey, Paul could not have possibly be the one responsible for these unsettling letters. However, uh, they were still upholding the ruling of him being guilty for building the post sign bomb. So it wasn't like they could release him from prison. They're like, hey, you didn't write the letters, but we still think you built the sign bomb, so you're staying in here. No, oh, jeez. Finally, in 1994, the letters suddenly stopped. Shortly after that, Paul was released from prison, during which he claimed his innocence, stating that he wasn't the person who built the bomb, and he wasn't the mysterious writer. But, of course, that didn't matter anyways, because the public and the media already believed that he was the anonymous writer due to that court ruling and due to what the sheriff was saying. However, in the end, Paul was never charged with writing the letters, and he eventually died of a heart attack at 70 years old on June 28, 2012, always proclaiming that he was innocent and that the anonymous Circleville writer was still out there. And that right there is pretty much the story of the Circleville letters. However, this entire weirdness doesn't stop here. Because now we're going to get into the strange facts and findings that we came across while researching this topic. So Dan, do you want to start it off for us and tell us about our first one? Yes. So our first strange fact and finding is about Mary and Gordon. Now, of course, there were these claims and rumors that Gordon and Mary were having an affair with one another. And, of course, Mary had always denied that she had an affair with Gordon. Now, after Ron had died, Mary did say that Gordon and her started seeing one another. Which is weird after the fact, but whatever. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah, totally weird. Why would she start dating Gordon after her husband died? Why would she start openly dating Gordon? <laughs> so weird. And there's a lot more claims that she indeed was having an affair with Gordon, but these were just claims. We couldn't find any substantial proof to back those up. See, I read somewhere that she admitted it, but it was after the letters started coming in. Not before, but after. See, but like, like you said, though, a lot of stuff was wrong. Yep. A lot of stuff was wrong that was being reported, and it seemed like the original story that was told about this was more sensationalized. A lot of people say, if you look this story up, that Mary was the first one who received the letter, and then all of a sudden, everybody in the town started receiving letters, and that uh, it was threatening, and uh, Ron got killed with a showdown with somebody, which is not the truth, you know? If you go back and you look at the actual letters and look at the dates, you'll see that how we told the story is exactly how the letters were mailed out in that time frame. It was Gordon who received the first of them, and then the Board of Education. So it wasn't Mary. And it wasn't the entire town. The first waves of letters, right, were just to those few people, Mary, Ron, Gordon, and the Board of Education. So... It didn't eventually become the whole town until years later. But they all stopped in 1994. So if you're out there, anonymous Circleville writer, uh, go to our website, Theories of the Third Kind, click the contact button, and on that contact page of ours is a P.O. box. Write us a letter. We'd love to hear from you. Great. But just don't stalk us, please. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> 
I will drive around for days. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to our next strange fact and finding, which is about an individual named David Longberry. Now, before I get into this next strange fact and finding, I do want to give a listener discretion. Uh, this part is kind of a little bit graphic, what happens, so just a heads up. Um, if you aren't into that, you might want to fast forward a, a minute or two. All right. So with that being said, I'm going to tell you about this David Longberry guy. So David Longberry was a bus driver at the same exact school that Mary had worked at. Now, Mary had stated quite often that David acted a bit weird towards her and that it crossed her mind a few times that he might have been the anonymous writer. However, nothing came from that. You know, she never really pursued that thought. So that got us curious as to what happened to this David Longberry guy. And when we found out what happened to him, we were pretty shocked to say the least. So get this. In 1999, five years after the letters had stopped, he was living with an older couple. Well, that older couple had their 11-year-old granddaughter come over and visit them. And David ended up raping her. The girl told her grandfather about what had happened, and he ended up immediately confronting David, who didn't say anything. He just immediately left. Immediately walked out of the door, got in his vehicle, and left. He didn't even pack up his stuff or anything. After that, David pretty much disappeared. So the grandparents ended up notifying the police, and David was charged with rape of a child. And the police issued a warrant for him, and they started searching. But they could not find him. Eventually, in June of 2005, the police were notified that someone had seen a person that looked like David sleeping in a truck at a random truck stop. Then in February of 2006, the TV show America's Most Wanted aired an episode about David, stating that he might be at truck stops and to be on the lookout. Then, in spring of 2009, Pickaway County, Ohio Police Department, they were notified that David was dead. So they're all like, oh, okay, well, what happened? And then they, like, investigated it, and they're like, oh, shit, well, we got to give a statement. So a detective for the police department of Pickaway Sheriff's Office, he ended up making a statement and said that David Longberry had evaded police officers in 1999 by managing to get away and hitch a ride with a trucker all the way to El Paso, Texas. After David arrived in El Paso, Texas, he went behind a truck stop there and hung himself. So yeah, sounds like there was not a lot of good communication between <laughs> that police department and the Ohio Police Department. So 10 years after he's already been dead, did they find out that he killed himself? Yeah. He was even on America's Most Wanted, and he was already dead at the time. He died immediately after he left. Such great communication. Yeah. So we found that, of course, and we thought it was really weird, especially that guy being connected to this whole Circleville incident and all that. Very strange. And speaking of strange, we started to look into other things that had happened in Circleville. And this next one is pretty crazy. So, Dan, tell us about it. All right. So our next strange fact I'm finding is about another Circleville mystery. So in 1967, 10 years before the letter started, a bombing occurred, killing five people and injuring 30. Now, what happened was in March of that year, 
a woman named Phyllis Holbrook had filed for divorce from her husband. And side note, Phyllis worked as an employee for a local drugstore. So less than a month after Phyllis filed a divorce, her husband Lee walked into the drugstore where Phyllis worked at. He was carrying a wooden box that contained dynamite inside of it. Lee walked up to the pharmacy counter, set the wooden box on top of the counter, which at the time, the wooden box had smoke coming out of it. Lee looked at the person at the counter and said, hey, this is a bomb. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, okay, it's not funny. So it was at that point that the store owner, who was also a pharmacist, grabbed the box that was smoking and ran for the door to kind of like throw the bomb outside. But he didn't make it to the door. Before he could reach the door, the bomb went off. Lee, the store owner, and three other employees of the drugstore ended up dying and nearly 30 others were injured. Now, Phyllis at the time was not working, so she wasn't even at the store. Yeah, so she ended up surviving, which, I mean, that's pretty much the story right there, but I thought that was weird and that we should, you know, include that, that that occurred. Oh no, he went overboard with that. Yeah. Just accept it, man. He should have just accepted the divorce, started going to the gym, get his stuff in line, you know, but instead he had to go freaking get a box of dynamite. It's a shame. I don't know. I was like, where did he get a box of dynamite? I have no clue. All right, so let's move on to our last strange fact and finding that we're going to talk about, which is some additional photographs and documents that we came across while researching this topic. So, of course, just like all of the other photographs, we're going to post these on our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com. Click on references, scroll all the way down. And uh, the first photograph that we have is a pile of letters. Now, this pile of letters are the actual letters that Mary had received from the Circleville writer over the years that she ended up keeping. So I just thought that was interesting, you know. Our next photograph is a picture of Paul at his trial. And if you look at the photograph, Paul is on the bottom right, and you can just look at his face, and he's just kind of like, well, shit. (laughs) I mean... Man, yeah. Uh, I thought that was a very interesting photograph, you know, and that we should include that. Now, there was something else that we came across while we were researching Paul and his trial. And uh, we found an actual letter that Paul had written to the FBI. And it's a fairly short letter. So, uh, Dan, why don't you start it off for us and read what his letter said. Dear FBI, I'm asking that you get involved in my former brother-in-law's death because I believe it was a murder and covered up by the sheriff of Pickaway County. Please review the following exhibits, especially where they are highlighted. So following that letter is a lot of exhibits and examples from Paul that pretty much, he says, proves his innocence and shows that, you know, that his brother-in-law's death was a murder. Now, this document itself that he sent to the FBI was a total of 164 pages long, and it is extremely detailed. So we have a link to that actual document, and we will post the link on our website for anyone that wants to go and take a look at it. It is extremely detailed, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a good read to get into, you know, Paul's mindset and what he's thinking and stuff like that. So there you go. 
One last thing before uh, we get off a of strange fact and finding Aaron is that like when you were searching this up as well, did you see where they said that Ron was shot in the chest? He had like a bullet wound. Yeah. So a lot of those sites did state that Ron had a bullet uh, wound to his chest. However, I read the official police report. I went over everything and there was nothing that stated that he was shot in the chest. The only thing that was reported was that his gun had a spent uh, shell casing. So it had gone off, but they didn't say, you know, where the bullet went or anything like that. Gotcha. And maybe that's why on that uh, form 5293, I think it was, for the coroner to investigate, is why the coroner was notified that, hey, we have a suspicious death that you need to look into. And the coroner was pretty much just like, hey, he was drunk. He got into a wreck. I'm not going to do an autopsy on him. It's a shame. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess let's transition into the fun part of the episode, which is the theories section. Ooh. Yeah. I like theories. So, Dan, why don't you start it off for us? All right. So with our first theory, we're going to start off the theory section with going over the possible suspects of who the Circleville writer could have been. First up is our first suspect, of course, is Paul Fresher. Some people to this day truly believe that he was behind the letters. Now, something odd to add to this that we haven't talked about is Karen Fresher. Karen was Ron's sister, and Paul, of course, was married to her. Well, before the incident with the booby trap, Karen and Paul had just gone through a nasty divorce, and they really didn't get along. Some speculate that Karen stole Paul's gun and framed him. Which is a good theory and all. But is there any proof behind this claim that Karen might have framed Paul? I mean, we looked into it and there isn't really any proof. But there is something strange that we came across that we thought we should mention. So shortly after Paul and Karen got divorced, Karen started dating this older man who drove a bright orange vehicle. Now I know what you're thinking. What the hell does an old man in a bright orange vehicle have to do with anything? Well, get this. So you remember when Mary called the police and stated that she had found the booby trap and then ended up having the police come over who then filled out a police report? Yep. Well, in that police report, there was something very interesting. And it's located about halfway through it. It says, and we quote, Another female, Shelly Tucker, was following Mary in another bus, and the only other vehicle around was a small orange station wagon, which looked like a Vega, with the rear end panel closed, had stripes of different color, and an occupant was an older man wearing glasses. This vehicle came northbound on Five Points Pike Road at a slow rate of speed. Miss Gillespie stated that she did not pay any attention to where the car went as her attention was on the sign. So that is the only mention of that older man in the orange vehicle in that police report, which kind of makes you wonder. I mean, maybe that was Karen's new boyfriend. Maybe her new boyfriend and Karen created a plan to frame her ex-husband, Paul, then Karen's boyfriend, which was the old guy in the orange Vega. He ended up doing all the dirty work. He planted the bomb with the sign, and then he drove down the road a little bit, turned around, and then drove back around to make sure that Mary saw it 
and was getting out of the school bus to get it. So, that's, I mean, it's possible, and it's a good theory. Yeah, uh, see, I don't know if it's true or not, because so many of these sites got so many things wrong. I want to say that someone reported that guy, someone messing with that sign the day before, right? No, the sign wasn't even there the day before. In the trial, a lot of people went up on the stand that drove by that area. They had a person testify that they drove by that area at 7.30 in the morning and the sign was not there. Another person stated that they drove by at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon and the sign was not there. So that's why they had uh, that one guy who was Paul's friend testify and say, hey, I was with Paul from 12.30 to 4 p.m. at his house and he never left his house. So he, since he never left his house and nobody saw the sign there until 3 p.m., that means it was impossible for him to have left his house and be the one who posted that sign. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it wasn't Paul that did it. No, it wasn't Paul. It was more than likely this new boyfriend in this orange vehicle, which everybody reports it as an El Camino. Yeah, that's what I saw. I have no idea where they got El Camino from because in the police report, it clearly states an orange station wagon that looked like a Vega. So, Yeah, because uh, I want to say that, I forgot where I read it, they said that they saw a guy, when the sign went up, someone saw, driving past, saw the sign go up, and the person that put it up was a man, older gentleman, but he had like sandy blonde hair, which Paul does not have sandy blonde hair. He has dark hair. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that, and I didn't read that in the trial, so. See, I don't think that was actually in the trial at all. Oh, okay. You would think that they would bring that up in the trial, if that was the case, you know? This one site said yellow El Camino, which there's no yellow vehicle involved in this. No, not at all. See, that's what I'm saying. I don't know where they get their information from. They just make it up. And that's what kind of got me pissed off when we were researching this, is, is I was like, you know what? We're going to completely scrap everything we read, and we're going to start right at the freaking beginning and build this as if we don't know anything that had happened. And that's what we did. We took the letters and we took all the trial stuff and we took everything and we just built this story as it played out. So it's totally accurate and not made up and sensationalized. So there you go. If I do come across what I've read about this guy being like having Sandy here and stuff, I will, I'll have Aaron add it to the reference site if we can find it. Yeah. I'll have to find it again because I know I read it somewhere and I'm just like because they was they discreetly said like which Paul doesn't have blonde hair he has dark hair and which in that photo of Paul sitting there in court you can clearly see that he has dark hair you would think something like that would be brought up in court especially if Paul learned about that he would be like hey this gets me out of uh, being in jail I want this person to testify that they saw this see I feel like that's where the sheriff department or whatever kept that hidden because they just couldn't prove like what that person saw. But still, that's something that should be brought up. All right. So let's talk about our next suspect. Dan, do you want to tell us about this next one? All right. Our next suspect is one that not many people think about. That is Mary. This theory is that maybe Mary is the one that is in on it, that she devised this entire plan she started writing the letters, drove her husband to drinking and driving, which he died, so that she could ultimately be with Gordon. Here's my issue with this. Why 
write the sign, create the fake booby trap to get Paul arrested. Why? And why did she continue writing the letters afterwards, after all this was done? It, it just doesn't fit for me. I don't know. Because, like, when we were going through the letters, like, looking at the one letters that we did have, and then the Christmas card, I feel like the Christmas card was written by someone else, though. You think that it might have been a different person? I think that was a different person that wrote the card. Okay. All right. Well, we get into that theory here in a minute. Funny you mention that. But, um, I don't think it was Mary. I definitely don't think it was her. I think she was more of just letting it go, like, letting it slide by. Just like, oh, if we don't talk about it, bring it up, it'll just go away type of person. Yeah. So why wait till after her husband dies, then make a move to have someone else, like, pretend to kill her? I just don't see it. I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I don't see it either. My thought is it's this next person. Ooh, who's the next person? Yeah, so this next suspect is one that hardly anyone talks about, and it is William Massey, who is the son of Gordon Massey. So this theory is that Gordon's son was behind the letters, that Gordon's son found out about his dad cheating on his mom with the multiple bus drivers. So what did William do? Well, instead of confronting his dad, he decided to start writing anonymous letters to him and to the school board and then to Mary, whom he was having an affair with. This was like a sort of a way to get back at his dad secretly. And then he just continued writing the letters to multiple other people in the city after, even after it was over with. Hmm. This one kind of fits more than the other ones. I like this one better. There are some hints throughout the episode that would suggest that it is somebody that's very close to Gordon. Yep. And, I mean, his son would know all the kinds of shit going on in the family, especially in the house. Yep. How old was his son, do we know? Whenever Gordon took the position in 1972, mm -hmm. I want to say, it stated in that article that his son was a sophomore in high school in 1972. So by 1977, he was already out of high school. So he was older. So he would have been like 19. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's very weird. So tell us about this last suspect, Dan. All right. So there is a theory that it wasn't just one person writing these letters, that in fact it was multiple people. Perhaps when the letters started, multiple people in the town used this as an opportunity to air their grievances. That is why the letters continued until 1994. Someone's pissed off at their neighbor. You know what? F you, Johnny. I see you running around with old Teresa over there. I personally don't believe this one. I think William is the one who started writing the letters. Then, I think that Karen got together with her boyfriend and framed Paul as the letter writer and framed him to be the one that's like, hey, he's the one who built this trying to kill Mary. and. uh Paul got, you know, screwed because of it. And when he went to prison, William just kept writing these letters. That's what I'm going with. Hmm. William being related to him, knowing stuff going on, I can definitely see that. The Karen thing, I mean, it would be a good opportunity. When did, well, he doesn't know, Paul doesn't know when he lost the gun. No, he doesn't. But nothing else fits for me. I mean, that's me personally. Nothing else fits. I mean, 
you know, throughout the episode, only one person in my mind for a while was the prime suspect for me. Who was it? Gordon's wife. Oh, we don't even talk about her. It's just like, you know what? I'm trying to, I'm just trying to think about it. Like, if she can get them to openly admit it, or for, and she, like, the letters kept saying, like, go ahead, go to him, go to him. She would be trying to get evidence. Then she can file for divorce and take everything. His $28,000 salary, just take everything from him. You single handedly changed my mind, Dan. Yeah, it's like she was waiting for them to pretty much get sloppy with them hooking up or whatever, if they were hooking up, you know, and didn't get evidence against them. But now get this. I think there was more than one person. I think it was his wife and son because she was probably the mastermind behind it. The son might have been actually writing the letters because, like in the, one of the letters to Mary, he's like, lady. I feel like when you say something like that, that's like more of a respectful thing to someone older than you. And considering he was like, what, 1920, you know, he would say that then, you know, telling her like, oh, what you've done to Miss Massey, you know, instead of just like using his mom's first name, he used, you know, more professional uh, way of saying her name. He might have been writing the letters, but she might have been the mastermind to try to get them to pretty much slip up. But the only thing that gets me is about Ron. Did he really get drunk and just go out driving? Like, did Tracy say anything about him drinking? Yeah, okay, so Tracy did state that she did smell a little bit of alcohol on his breath whenever he gave her a kiss, but that he wasn't visibly intoxicated. All the stuff that you hear about him being on the phone, him arguing with somebody, and then what happened after that about him getting his gun, kissing Tracy, telling her he's going to go confront the caller or the letter writer, that all comes from Tracy. Nobody else. She's the one who stated that because she was the last person who saw him alive. So we just have to take her word for it. Mm, okay. So maybe Ron was, wasn't supposed to like die. It was just that was actually an accident. Hmm. Well, I think back to who would have enough motivation, who would have enough anger to write these letters, you know, because that requires a lot of dedication it does. and a lot of time. And you got to have a lot of anger behind you to do this. And the only person that would have that amount of anger would be Gordon's wife. So I'm right there with you. I think it's Gordon's wife and his son. Yeah, and another thing that kind of threw me off was I highly doubt that Mary would call all the other bus drivers, well, she might, you know, my girls. But Gordon being the superintendent, guarantee that his wife was friends. Yeah, and she's protected of him. And that's how she found out about Mary. And some of the other girls were like, hey, your husband kind of flirts. And he's seeing he's running around with Mary. And that's how she found out. Her going to visit her husband at work and seeing that there's women always in his office and stuff. Boom. She was the Circleville writer, her and her son. And then Ron's death was just kind of like, ooh, coincidence, you know. And then Karen and her husband ended up framing Paul. And he took the blunt end of being like, hey, He's the Circleville writer. He's the one who set up that sign when he didn't. It was Karen and uh, her 
boyfriend. That I can go with. Solved. Solved. Thank you. Come again. End of the show. <laughs> I don't see the Circleville writer actually getting a gun that belongs to Paul to set it up without him. Like, unless they broke into his house, which that's a thing. They wouldn't have done that because this whole time, all they did was write letters. They didn't do anything physical. They didn't. They did threaten uh, Gordon about his tires and gas tank. Yep, but they never threatened Mary uh, and said that they were going to kill her or anything like that. And she stated that in the trial, that she never was threatened in the letters. Yeah, and then if you look at, honestly, if you look at the booby trap, it was definitely someone amateur that made it. And it all depended on how you open that box for it to go off. Like, they didn't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's such a terrible booby trap, man. People taking advantage of the situation. Yep, I agree. And I think maybe the motivation in these letters continuing on from uh, Gordon's wife might have been from embarrassment to the community. You had members of the community realizing, hey, you know, your husband is running around with this other woman. You know, what is that doesn't look good for you. So she felt embarrassed. So she was like, you know what, I'm going to write back to all the members in the community and tell them how horrible they are. And that's why she continued writing letters. Until 1994. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That is the Circleville Letters. So uh, do you have anything else you want to add to this episode today, Dan? Um, if you know somebody that's in the school thing cheating, don't write a letter. Just go ahead outright. Call them out. <laughs> Just get it over yeah, with. Call them out in the relationship and move on with your life. Don't start a friggin' letter writing just horrible for everybody. Yeah. An innocent man ended up dying for that shit. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, usually at this point, we would transition to our on the scene for the week and shout outs and birthday shout outs. However, since this episode went on for longer than usual, a lot longer than usual, we're going to have to move our on the scene, our shout outs and birthday shout outs to next week. So I apologize uh, if you have a birthday this week. I'll get you next week. I promise you'll each get a custom song made for you, okay? Ooh. Sang by Dan himself. I knew that was coming. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, that's the end of the episode today. So I want to thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone.